Am I okay now? Let me try. A man was marooned on a deserted island. After, after he'd been there about five years, he was found and rescued. And as he was climbing into the rescue boat, the curious rescuers noticed three, ga- three grass huts up on the edge of the beach. We thought you were here alone. Why are there three grass huts? Oh, the man replied, the first hut is my home, the second is my church. They said, yep, but what about the third? He said, oh, that's the church I left. (laughs) We chuckle, but there's truth in that tale. People leave churches. And those kinds of departures, they can be painful. And indeed, they they ought to be. This morning, we want to consider a passage of Scripture that prepares us for departures. And not just local church departures, as concerning as those may be. But walking away from Christ departures. How will you respond when people you know and love walk away from their faith? It may be a former churchmate, an extended member of your family, a child who's gone off to university, a young couple who has become just overwhelmed with their expanding responsibilities. It may be that you've been lured away by some of the more attractive options, shopping, sports, checking off items on your to-do list, rest and relaxation, your bed on Sunday morning. The possibilities are endless, but the results are the same. They walked away from church and maybe even from Jesus. How do you respond? We're presently making our way through the Apostle John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name, eternal life. And that's why he wrote this book. John chapter 20, verse 31 tells us so. This morning, we're going to finish up John chapter 6. It's been a long one, 71 verses. The chapter began with a miracle of all miracles. Jesus taking five loaves of barley and two fish and feeding an entire multitude of 20 to 25,000 people. The crowd responded by wanting to make him their king, and Jesus slipped away alone into the hills. He reconnected with his disciples by walking out on the water of the Sea of Galilee. And that crowd that he had fed earlier, they caught up with him. On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the city of Capernaum. Jesus explained to them 
that he is the bread of life that came down out of heaven. By eating this bread, they will live forever. He was speaking metaphorically, using physical, visible things to explain spiritual, invisible realities. Then he entered the synagogue where he encounters the Jews. That label that the Apostle John uses for Jesus' official opposition. They considered themselves to be God's self-appointed watchdogs. And I'd like to suggest they were pit bulls. Because you'll remember in John chapter 15, John chapter 5, verse 18, we are told that they were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus. But last week in these verses in John chapter 6, Jesus commanded them to stop grumbling. He then explained why they should consider his bread of life offer, and he encouraged them to consume the meal that only he can provide, his flesh and his blood. If you're able, I'd like you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 60. Just before I begin, let me draw your attention to verse 66. Because this this verse really sets the context. This is what the Apostle John is talking about in verses 60 through to 71. Look at verse 66. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Wow. How sad is that? Departures. Walking away. Withdrawing. Follow as I read along. Therefore, many of his disciples, in verse 60, when they heard this, said, this this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Excuse me. But there are some of you who, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted from him, granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know you. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, Did I myself not choose you, 
the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. May God help us to understand this word that we've read this morning. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. The word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, our ultimate example. And then the, the written word that has been supernaturally preserved down through the ages so that now we can sit here Sunday after Sunday, hearing it, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and meditating on it. May the psalmist's testimony become ours. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, it prevents us from being conformed to this less than perfect world. Rather, it transforms us by the renewing of our minds so that your thoughts become our thoughts and your ways our ways. We admit our tendency is to wander, to be distracted, to be seduced, to be deceived, and even to deceive ourselves. And so this episode in the Gospel of John is a sobering reality check. Help us to understand it so that we are able to be faithful followers walking with you all the way into eternity where we will experience life forevermore. And enable us to encourage others to do the same. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, this is one of the most difficult and yet unavoidable realities of ministry. Think about it. Many of Jesus' disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus was standing right there in the flesh. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience. Listen to his lament, written near the very end of his life. He knew that he was on death row. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he writes, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So not even the great Apostle Paul could avoid this reality. As painful as departures are, you and I, we need to be prepared. And this passage of Scripture will help us do that. People you know and love have, or it seems are preparing, to walk away. And you're, you may be sitting here this morning with a, with a heavy heart. And there are all kinds of reasons why people depart. 
both legitimate and not so much so. Things like vocational relocations. We, we live in a transient society. Pursuing further ed education. Living in Woodstock, Fanshawe, or, well, the options are pretty limited. You're moving away. Then there's that personal preferences or convenience, geography, maybe the timing of the services. Then there's relationships. You're trying to get away from some individuals or you may be wanting to be reunited with others. Programming for our kids, whatever. The preaching and or the singing, the, the, the worship style. Certainly, death imposes a departure. Departures, whatever they look like and for whatever reason, they're difficult and they're inescapable. We need to be prepared. And this passage that we're looking at this morning will do just that. By providing, I would say, three prohibitions or Three warnings that will help us to prepare for departures. And the first is, don't take it personally unless you should. Let me explain the exception. If, if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And this is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that begins in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 and goes all the way through to the end of Matthew chapter 7. But notice verse 23 of Matthew chapter 5. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. I see three things in that passage that might prove helpful. Number one, you and I need to take the initiative. Number two, we can't hide behind our religious responsibilities or religious duties. Leave your gift at the altar and go. And thirdly, we're to act with a sense of urgency. Notice you're to make friends quickly. So if we're responsible somehow for the departure by, by something we've said or left unsaid, or by something we've done or not done, and we know about it, then we need to be the ones taking the initiative to resolve that issue as much as we can. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it reads, If possible, do so as far as it depends on you to live at peace with all men. That's all I'm going to say about the exception. We good with that? You know where I'm coming from? Let's read on in John chapter 6, verses 60 
to the end of verse... Well, let me just read. Therefore, many of his disciples... Actually, let me stop there for a minute because we need to have a clarification here. So when John is talking about disciples at this point, we need to remember that there's circles of relationships around Jesus. They're like concentric circles. And so the closest circle to Jesus is Peter, James, and John, the three disciples, right? The next circle out would be the twelve that he handpicked. And then beyond that are the 70 that he sent out. Are you following me? In terms of intimacy with Christ? And then there are his disciples, these people. They are the ones that could be called learners. They identify with Jesus. He's my teacher. He's my rabbi. And then beyond those disciples, there's the crowd or the multitude that likes to be part of Jesus' signs. Certainly eating the food, but maybe just witnessing these supernatural things that he's doing. That's the crowd. And then, of course, beyond the crowd are the Jews, Jesus' official opposition. And then beyond the Jews is the world. Those people who are just going about the business of living their life, completely ignorant, disinterested, or disengaged with what was happening around them at the time. As we approach this passage, it is important for us to understand that his disciples do not necessarily mean, that label does not necessarily mean that these individuals believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. They were certainly closer than the crowd or the Jews or the world. But in this context, you could be his disciple without believing in him. Disciple becomes a much more exclusive term once the New Testament church is established in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But for now, at this point, and, and at this time in the in life and ministry of Jesus, Disciples are just learners. They are people who've accepted Jesus as their rabbi. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 32, it reads, And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. That's disciples' talk at this point. He was also doing those amazing things, but the disciples were following him because they liked to listen to him teach. I hope that's helpful. Let's continue. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh Prophets, nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So Jesus, in these verses, exposes his disciples' deficiency that led to their departure. Disciples' deficiencies. The first is that they grumbled at his teaching. 
In verse 60, we are told that many of his disciples voiced their concern. According to the New American Standard Bible, this is a difficult statement, they were saying. In the NIV, this is a hard teaching. The New Living Translation, this is very hard to understand. In fact, in the original language, it was not that hard to understand, but it was very difficult for them to accept. That was the issue. It was clear enough. But they found his teaching to be harsh, vulgar, and even offensive. Eating his blood, drinking his blood and eating his flesh, that's just gross. And coming down out of heaven? Come on. That sounds close to blasphemy to me. Grumbling at Jesus' teaching was a discipleship deficiency that led to their departure. You start grumbling at Jesus' teaching or at what the scriptures say. Well, you know what happens. Additionally, many of his disciples were unable to grasp spiritual realities. Look at the next verses. Jesus turns from talking about what they were hearing to what they were seeing. What then if you see? And then verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These disciples of his were limited to this physical world. That's all they could think in terms of the physical, what they could see and touch, what they could taste and, and smell. Jesus admitted that the Spirit's life-giving influence will play an essential role in his attempt to move his disciples beyond the physical to the spiritual. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, we read these words. But a natural man, people like you and I, in our natural state, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. Folks, you and I, we cannot figure this out on our own. It's just impossible. We have an inability to grasp spiritual realities. And that inability to grasp spiritual reality is another deficiency that led to their departure. Many of his disciples, it says in verse 64, the first part of the verse, did not believe. I think I said last week in last week's message, but it's worth saying again. Don't underestimate the power of unbelief. Pastor, a pastor and author, Ian Murray, writes, Unbelief springs from the desire that there be no authority to command our personal behavior. Think about that. Unbelief springs from the desire that there be no authority to command our personal behavior. That's powerful. That's a power that's within us. We don't want people telling us what to do or how to think. 
In, his, in the book called Valley of the Vision, it's a collection of Puritan prayers and reflections, I read this. No sin is greater than the sin of unbelief. For if union with Christ is the greatest good, being united with Christ, if that's the greatest good, unbelief has to be the greatest sin. Unbelief is a disciple deficiency that led to their departure. So, let's be clear. Not everyone who starts with Christ will finish in Christ. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And you want to turn here because this might be a verse you will underline in your copy of the scriptures. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. Remember, in his gospel, John is wanting us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Same author, same human author, is writing 1 John. And now he wants us to be absolutely convinced, to have assurance, to know beyond a reasonable doubt that we have this relationship with God that has been reconciled. And so that's the context in which he's writing. And then we come to verse, well, let me begin at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, this verse 19, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown or revealed that they all are not of us. Initially, these people, these antichrists, these opponents of Christ, were part of the church to one degree or another. Maybe they were just participants that came every Sunday morning. Maybe they were card-carrying members of the church or stewards, ministers amongst us. We don't know the extent of their involvement here in 1 John. But certainly they, they showed up often enough to be considered to be part of us until they departed. and started opposing the things of Christ. Here's the point that John's making in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. True disciples do not abandon their faith. They don't walk away. They persevere. So regardless of what life throws at us, brothers and sisters, true disciples continue believing. In fact, 
Their perseverance is evidence of their salvation. In the words of the psalmist, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved and abides forever. Psalm 125, verse 1. Listen to the Apostle Paul's confidence in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am convinced, I'm absolutely convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ. True disciples of Jesus will continue to believe. Overcoming their unbelief, Remember, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. They grow in their understanding and appreciation of spiritual realities. And they embrace the truth as taught by the Word, became flesh and preserved in the written Word, preparing for departures. When disciples depart, don't take it personally unless you should. And don't be surprised and or discouraged. Notice the second half of verse 64 in John chapter 6. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, were, who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he, and he was saying, for this reason... I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Jesus admitted to having some inside information prior to his disciples' departure. Some of you have heard the saying, begin with the end in mind. Stephen Covey explains, to begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you are going so that you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. Begin with the end in mind. Makes sense, right? Well, Jesus began, according to verse 64, with a whole different level of knowing the end. You see, Jesus began knowing which of his disciples were actually believing and who would deny him. And that required supernatural knowledge. But we're not surprised by that, because John has already introduced us to that back in John chapter 2. Remember the end of the chapter? Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man. For he himself knew what was in man. Here in John chapter 6, Jesus knew what was in his departing disciples, and it was unbelief. And because he knew what was in his disciples, he told them, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Look back at verse 44 of the same chapter. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. That was his message to those grumbling Jews. What about the crowd that he had fed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Look at verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Three different audiences, same message, again and again. The Father gives, draws, grants. Jesus may be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, but no one comes to Jesus, to Jesus, to the Father through Jesus, except the Father grants, draws, or gives them to Jesus. Again, understand this that left to ourselves, you and I can never or would never even seek God. Jesus had the advantage of knowing what was in his disciples and the absolute necessity of the Father's initiatives in their lives in order for them to come to him. So in that light, God is never surprised. To be surprised would suggest that he was uncertain about what was coming. But being an all-knowing God, he is never ignorant about future things. He is omniscient. He knows the beginning from the end and all the details in between. Listen to God's message to Israel through the prophet. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Later in the Gospel, according to John, in chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room with the twelve. He has just had the, or he's preparing to celebrate that last meal together before he goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be betrayed. And Jesus just demonstrated his love for his disciples by removing his outer garment and washing their feet. And then he makes this statement. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Clearly, Jesus claimed to know future events before they took place. You need to know that, that God is never surprised by our departures. So as true disciples, we continue following Jesus. How does that old hymn go? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. 
And I think reading this passage of Scripture, we could add that though some depart us, though some depart us, still we will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The Apostle Paul presents this challenge to each one of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is never in vain. Continue following. Be faithful, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Preparing for departures. When disciples depart, don't take it personally, unless you should. And don't be surprised and or discouraged. And finally, don't assume what you can never know. Look at verses 66, first of all. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Allow me to point out something else related to this verse. I want us to notice what Jesus does not do. How he reacts when his disciples start walking away. This reminds me of another episode in Matthew chapter 19. It involved a a rich young man who had come to Jesus asking, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He claimed to have kept all the commandments. And then Jesus responded with this. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Interesting. Jesus let people walk away. No appeasement, no begging, no pleading. No compromises. If I, were to, if I were an artist and were to paint a picture of this scene, Jesus would be completely surrounded by his disciples, those people who were calling him rabbi. And their eyes would be fixed on Jesus, not on the person walking away. They'd be watching him, every eye glued to the master. But Jesus would be looking at the back of that rich man, his eyes fixed on those slumped shoulders and eyes that were fixed on the ground as that young man walked away. And I'd paint a tear in Jesus' eye. Mark's account of this episode tells us that Jesus felt compassion for him when he walked away. But he lets people depart. Jesus is not a hostage taker. 
maybe there's some implications for us to think about, both individually and collectively. John chapter 6, verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Look carefully at Peter's confession. True to character, Peter jumps up and speaks on behalf of the others. He offers a a two-part confession or affirmation. First, concerning Jesus' teaching. He didn't deny the difficult statement, but neither was he grumbling. In fact, he did just the opposite. Peter affirms their belief in what Jesus had been teaching. You have the words of eternal life. But notice he goes even further. We have believed and have come to know there's that settled sense of conviction there in the minds of the twelve so that even if all the others left, he was pretty sure that they were going to stick with Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The twelve, or I, maybe I should say at least the eleven. Judas was still in their midst at this point. Provided a living example of what believing and knowing looks like when others start walking away. They believed and came to know that in Peter's words, Jesus was the Holy One of God. I think the Apostle John could have easily added Jesus' response to Peter on another occasion. Remember his declaration in Matthew's account of the Great Confession? Remember that? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, where he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Just an aside, as I studied this passage this week, the thought came to me that in John chapter 16, we have that great confession or sorry, in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 22, we have the great commandment. It talks about loving God with all your heart, the first and the second commandment. And then in Matthew chapter 28, we have the, the great commission, right? So the, the great confession, the great commandment, the great commission. And I think here in John chapter 6, we have the great departure as this multitude of people gets thinned out considerably. But here in John chapter 6, Jesus corrects Peter's confession by pointing out that he chose them and that one of them was in fact 
a devil, literally a slanderer or a false accuser. Interesting that they had been together now two, two and a half years, these 12, and yet living in close proximity, exposed to the same teachings of Jesus, and yet no one had seen it. They had no idea that Judas would betray Jesus when he left the upper room that night. They were completely oblivious. Just goes to show you that unbelief can be concealed. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Or maybe we can. But God knows. Because God looks at the heart. And so we continue. Continue sharing. God has reconciled us to himself and given us the message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When it comes to reaching out to others, especially to former churchmates, to our kids who may have prayed a prayer when they were younger, to members of our extended family and friends who've withdrawn or no longer walking with Jesus, continue to share the gospel with all who will take the time to listen. Don't make Peter's mistake. Don't assume that just because they're among us or have been among us that they are believers let's continue to encourage one another to be initiating spiritual conversations with anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen preparing for departures when disciples depart don't take it personally unless you should don't be surprised and or discouraged and don't assume what you can never know. Continue believing, continue following, continue sharing. Let's pray. Well, there's certainly a, a difficult passage to hear and Yet, uh, it's a passage that speaks clearly to realities that we've experienced and wrestle with as we attempt to live out our faith in community, in, in this community called the Rock Community Church. Help us to be a gracious people, to be stimulating one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, 
but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.